Pastor Andrew, what a blessing. Praise the Lord. Thank you for being here today, family, spiritual family. It's almost like every time you show up on a Sunday, whether in person or online, it's, it's uh, in a little bit of holy defiance to say we will not stop gathering together around Jesus to hear the gospel of his kingdom and how it shapes our lives together for his mission and purpose in this hour. Amen. Every week. How many need a tune-up at least weekly? At least. How many need a tune-up more than once a week? (laughs) Or just an opportunity to reorient and recalibrate our lives around Jesus and his kingdom. And so let me just pray one more time for us, and then we'll probably pray again a couple more times. But Lord, as we are on the balls of our spiritual feet, ready to hear your word, we ask that you would save us from being simply hearers and not doers. We thank you that your word always comes with an invitation to participate in what it's saying, to obey it, to cherish it, to love it, and to share it. So I ask God for all of the hearts and lives represented in this room and those watching with us online that you would Make our hearts that fertile soil that as the seeds of your kingdom word come forth this morning, it would find a place to land and it would find a heart that's ready to cherish, to water and to see that seed produce its fruit through our lives. And so Holy Spirit, would you come upon both the the teacher and the listener and may all of us experience what it is to be taught by the anointing of the Spirit as the Spirit is the truth. As your word is truth. And so we ask God in an age that so readily discards of truth in the name of self, we as your people say, We submit gladly to who you are, what you have done, what you say. Yours is the kingdom and the power forever and ever. Amen and amen. Well, grab your Bibles. We're going to continue um, in 1 Peter chapter 2. How many this week, if you remember last week, we had a special time of intercession for our spiritual siblings in Afghanistan, how many this week have had your heart drawn, at least maybe on one occasion, to just pray for what's happening all over the world, just by show of hands? It doesn't mean you had to pray every day for hours, but just that the Spirit was able to get a hold of your heart, even for moments. How many are so thankful for the Spirit that invites us into partnership with Jesus, the great intercessor? And the mystery of godliness is not just for those who are like a flash in the pan who are zealous for a moment. It's those who increasingly say yes to becoming a participant of what God is doing on the earth. And so I just want to commend you for those, and no shame if if it didn't. It could have been for something else, for California, for school, for your students, for for your children or your your, your colleagues at work. But I just want to, uh, I just want to say good job. How many have known what it is for the Spirit to highlight something and to ignore it? (laughs) So the fact that all of us are aiming at, when the Spirit comes knocking, we say, yes, come on in. What are you doing? How can I participate? Say that with me. Yes, come on in. What are you doing? How can I participate? Amen. How many are thankful that the gospel, I love that, that, that declaration of, the book of Acts, the gospel cannot be chained. And so, Father, as we are still in the, the mess of what's unfolding in Afghanistan, we do continue to pray and contend for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. God, we ask for revival, that as those, John 12, 24, those who are literally giving their life, I pray as their seed hits the ground, that ten seeds would spring up around it. Father, that's the way the kingdom works. We don't wish that kind of suffering on anybody. 
you don't and we don't, but Father, as they stand in that place of, I just read a powerful quote from an underground church leader, it is that place of, of, of standing in faith. God, we ask that you would strengthen our brothers and sisters right now. We thank you, Father, for organizations like Frontier Alliance and like YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and many other organizations and Samaritan's Purse that are sowing into the, the crisis that is unfolding there. And we just, as a church here in California, we say, God, strengthen our global brothers and sisters. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray for the inbreaking of your peace. We ask for strategies and solutions that would preserve life and that would do whatever it takes, Father, that your purposes would prevail in Afghanistan, in the Middle East, that, Father, millions, yea, a billion souls would turn to the Messiah Jesus in this hour in repentance and faith and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the name of Christ, we all said amen and amen. So we just want to continue to be cognizant as believers. We're going to continue in 1 Peter chapter 2 as I shared. Grab your Bibles. I'm going to make, we're going to try to make quick work and actually get through the passage. The key idea, if you're tracking in 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 through 310, there's really one thread that ties it all together. It's this, the transforming and subversive power of submission. I joked last week in the intro, Peter has picked back-to-back two of our favorite words in our cultural moment. He says to abstain from sinful desires <laughs> and then to submit to various authority structures. And in our day and age where it's all about self, me, and like, we need to hear the word abstain and submit and have Holy Spirit transform us so that we can participate in what God's doing through His Son, Jesus. How many are so thankful that the word, Hebrews 4.12, is like a sword? It can cut us not because he's mean, because he wants to heal us and then plant seeds of life that don't just touch our lives, but the lives of those around us as we get into alignment and agreement with Jesus and his kingdom. So how many need the sword of the word of God on more than one occasion to come and to cut, to reveal areas of compromise or idolatry or competing allegiances so that the gospel word can bear fruit all the way down? And so that's what this whole section of Peter is writing about the transforming and subversive power of submission. Next slide. And we do this. Why do we submit? Say it with me in the all caps. For the Lord's sake. One more time. For the Lord's sake. As believers, there is this underlying. How many have ever been into even a service like this or a building where there's like a low-level hum, the 440 hum. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Like your, 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 as believers, the low-level hum, everything in our life has a, is a means to the end of glorifying Jesus Christ. So the reason why Peter can say abstain from sinful desires, the reason why he can now just take the household cold code of Roman first century and subvert it Bring the gospel to bear in all these power structures. He says the reason all of that, we do all of that as believers is for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. So last week we talked a super easy topic about believers and governing authorities. Thank you for the three courtesy laps that I was supposed to be like. Everyone says, yes, it's very... So just go listen to the talk. I thought it was a really powerful week. Just go listen to the tape. I'm going to get into the next section, starting with verse 18. Uh, let's read. Uh, I'll read it. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are what? Conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer, read it with me, for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And before we unpack sort of slavery, you're like, slavery, dude, this is like, what are you talking about? The, the, the implication here in the, in the previous verses to this passage, 
unpacks that for believers, whether in the first century you are a male, a female, slave, or free, Galatians 3.28, young or old, the, the gospel frees us from sin, Satan, and shame, and then we become, we get taken from the dominion of darkness, Colossians 1.13 and 14, and we're established in a brand new kingdom of which Jesus Christ is Lord. So we're literally, when you put your faith in Jesus, you come under another master. And we all said, amen. There's not a master like Jesus Christ and our good father. And so we already unpacked sort of slavery and freedom and, the, and how Paul uses this, this he, it's the word doulos. It's like a bond slave, a servant of Jesus, that I was a slave to sin, right? John 8, 31 through 36. But when I trusted in Jesus, the truth of his gospel set me free from the tyranny of sin, and now I am under the covering and leadership and lordship of another, Jesus Christ. So, within the household code, Peter, here's what Peter's doing. Believers and governing authorities. Now, he's down the line, slaves and masters. So let's just unpack this very, very briefly. It's on the slide. For the diff first century slavery, the, let me just get right to it. The, 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 it's not an exact correlation, but think employer and employee. Everyone say amen. That's where we're going. It's not exact, but it's as close as we can get to in 21st century. So in the Roman world, about a third of the world was slaves. Unlike slavery in our country, it was not based on race. So it was different. I'm not saying it was all pie in the sky, but it was different. Slaves could be educated. They could own it was usually, keyword on usually, this is the first century Roman world, it was temporary with a path toward freedom. And slaves were not just those who did the work no one wanted to. There were doctors, teachers, sea captains, and the like. I'm not saying it was, it was ever God's, and I'm actually saying it was never God's intention because I told you the biblical anthropology is that every person is made in the image of God. Amen. But in the Roman world, I read this from one scholar, N.T. Wright, said basically everything you and I experience with electricity, that's what slaves did in the ancient world. And so Paul, if he was to just, you know, you know, the obvious question is that why didn't Paul or Peter or the apostles just say, abolish slavery? It would have been akin to us saying, hey, everybody live without electricity. Are you tracking with me? So there's two ways that culture changes. One superimposed takedown right through like Barabbas stuff, like insurrection, violence, and sword. Amen? All of us are very familiar with that. There's another way to subvert and transform culture, and that's through the subversive power of a different culture that serves as leaven to transform the culture around it through the slow, grinding process of faithfulness over a period of time. Care to know which one, usually how the kingdom of God operates in. The slow, subversive process of modeling and then calling people to participate in a different reality called the kingdom of God. So when Peter writes, or when Paul talks about slaves in the first century, he's subverting norms and cultures knowing that believers, because many slaves became believers, again, it was like a third of the Roman world, and they were stuck with, now what are we supposed to do with our masters that they're believers? And so this is why he's speaking to them about submitting to their masters, whether they're good or considerate or what have you. Again, P Peter, if you're like, well, that sounds pretty gnarly in the first century. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11 through 16-ish, Paul lists on the list of those who the law is for to judge their sinfulness Right in that list are slave traders. So it's like, not that the New Testament, you have to hear me, because many uh, bad uh, pastors and leaders in our own history have taken these passages and applied them to today's, uh, for their own purposes. But Paul literally mentions slave traders as those who are sinners and who need to come under the law and repentance. Everyone say amen to that. So the principle for what Peter is saying and that's not to say, come on, I, I, I think I've heard a statistic, 27 million still. There's still slavery in our world, big time, maybe more than ever in history. 
And so that's why I'm careful to say the exact correlation is a boss, an employee, but as best as we can understand it, what this passage has for us, that's the road we're taking. So what is the principle? Slaves, masters, bosses, and employees. The principle is this. Ultimately, as a believer, God, next slide, is our master. Can we just say amen to that? God is our boss. How many would say, God is my boss? This is why you're able to endure if you have a crummy boss or crummy employees or your bad attitude. Ultimately, God is the one who can promote you. God is the one who ultimately provides for you, not your boss, not your company. Amen. And then ultimately, what, God spe- what, what Peter writes to slaves in his church who are Christians, God is your protector. Even if you suffer for doing good, it's commendable before God. This is why there's this underlying issue, Ephesians 6, 8. Again, almost every epistle speaks to the complexity of what happens when slaves become believers. Imagine in a church in the first century, you've got, like we've talked about, wives with unbelieving husbands, slaves and masters who are believers, young and old. Imagine the complexity when you think about the power structures of the first century and how Christ is transforming and infusing all of that with his light and life. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, again, two slaves in the first century, serve wholeheartedly. Why? As if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever you, good you do, whether you are slave or free. So you get the principle. No matter who your boss is, work hard. Amen. Titus chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Again, Paul writing how the church is to organize itself in the first century and all of its complexities and different power structures. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything and to try to please them, not to talk back to them or to steal for them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. Read this last line with me. So that in every way they will make the teaching about our God, I'm sorry, about God our Savior, attractive. So you see, it's not God's intention Paul and Peter and the disciples acknowledge it's a cultural reality, not in God's heart. That's why it's always been believers who've been on the tip of the spear of abolition. Amen. Anyone seen that? The Wilberforce movie and Amazing Grace and all those amazing movies. It's always been Christians who are saying, no, this isn't God's intention. But we see Peter and Paul and the apostles when they write to the church of their hour They have a singular purpose that everything is a means to the end of Jesus Christ being glorified. So even though you're a believer, you're actually free, but treat your master with respect, be trustworthy, work wholeheartedly. Why? I love that verse. So that the teaching about God is attractive. How many would think that this week when you're on the job, I wonder if Jesus' teaching is attractive through the way I'm doing my job? That's what Peter and Paul and the apostles are getting at. In your workplace, I love this. I wrote this. Look at this. Next slide. Our heart posture at work. Three things. This is not exhaustive, and this could be a whole sermon series about God at work at work. Number one, glorify God. As believers, everything we are about is to glorify God. Psalm 24 says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So if it's all his, that means all of my life is an opportunity to give glory to God. Amen. Number two, as I was thinking about believers in the work for all of our church, basically, exalt Jesus. Say exalt Jesus. The Bible says that Christ holds the name that is above every name. Amen. But he, 1 Corinthians 8, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, Lance always quotes it when he leads worship. He, though he was rich, became poor so that we, through his poverty, could become rich through his grace. So my heart as at work is to glorify God. It's all his and it's all for him. And then it's to exalt Jesus. And how do I do that? Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life away. So what's my attitude at work? Glorify God and exalt Jesus through a servant mentality. How many are being challenged already by my workplace? I thought I was just here to get bunny. No, if 
you're a believer, there's a deeper purpose in your work than just punching the clock. And it matters to God. Say that with me. It matters to God. My work matters to God. And then last, I love this one. This one I felt the Lord on all of it, but here. And then Holy Spirit, empowered and emboldened for four, at least four things, probably way more, but I wrote these four things. I want to glorify God. I want to exalt Jesus. And I need the Holy Spirit to embolden and empower. For what? Number one, excellence. How many believe that believers have an opportunity to do good work for the glory of God? Who thinks those who've been bought with the blood of Jesus should be the best in their field at glorifying God with the spirit of excellence? Why would I cut corners if I've already been told, again, slavery, first century, employee, employee, 21st century, that by the way I work as unto the Lord is an opportunity for my bosses to see something of the glory of God's character and nature. So number one, I need the Holy Spirit, if I'm a believer in the workplace, to empower me to give myself to excellence. How many believe that? How many believe we cannot afford to take the mindset, oh, it's all going to burn up anyway. Well, I just got to punch the clock. I'm going to heaven. I'm good. Baloney. Jesus' prayer was on earth as it is in heaven. So we want to become a church. And you, if you're in the work field and you've been cutting corners, come under submission to Jesus again and say, you know what? What does excellent look like tomorrow? Go on a journey with them. Don't beat yourself up. Come into agreement. Holy Spirit, change my attitude and perspective in my workplace. Number two, intentionality. How many think that it's easy to get caught up in any rat race, no matter the field? It's easy to lose sight of. There's a greater purpose here. It's, come on, someone say amen. And so we need the Holy Spirit to give us empowerment for excellence and intentionality. The Bible says that the days are evil, so to be wise and to make the most of every opportunity. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. How many think making the most of every opportunity means every opportunity is an opportunity? And so I need the Holy Spirit. I want to be excellent. I want to be, I want, for your glory, I want to be the best in this, in shining your light. And I need to be intentional. I want to see when the crack of my, my, my colleague at work, when they start, how many know, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 34. That applies to believers and unbelievers. So if there's a greater purpose here at work, I'm submitting to Jesus. I want his teaching to be attractive by my commitment to excellence and glorifying God and exalting Jesus. I want to be intentional to see those around me through the 2 Corinthians 5.16, the eyes of Jesus Christ, not through the eyes of flesh. How many need an upgrade on your outlook for work and because of the grind? I do. All of us do. How many know we can't afford to see people the way everyone else sees people who are not born again? We have a, a glorious responsibility to be those who see as he sees, to say what he says, to unlock God's redemptive purposes for people around us. Okay, thank you. Do, do you guys buy that? Or do we, just, do we just bury our head and just work? No. If you're going to be doing it for like 35 or 40 years of your life, you might as well do it in his spirit, in his strength, for his glory. Number three, innovation. I'm taking way too long on this, but I hope this is helping you, at least challenging you, because all of you work. Everyone has a, almost everyone works in here. Excellence and intentional innovation. How many believe, believe, and by the way, believers have. This isn't like believers have. This is just true. If you read history, believers are always on the cutting edge of, of innovation. How many believe that in your field, in your sphere of influence, there, there is kingdom innovation yet to be discovered? Believers, I'm, it's, it's excellence, it's intentionality, and why not say, Holy Spirit, if you're the one who, through the word of creation, you spoke and things spun into being, and they, they found their purpose and des design and destiny, why wouldn't you anoint me, not for my glory, but for yours, to innovate in my field for your glory? And I'm telling you, we need innovation in our workplaces, in our school systems, come on, in every sphere of our culture, believers to lean in. 
Listen, this doesn't happen if we have an old by and by mentality. I'm just waiting for Jesus to come and get me out of here. No, even in exile, Jeremiah 29, we're supposed to plant vineyards, build houses, be married, have children, grow our influence. We as believers, we don't just check out. If that was God's highest goal for you was to say a sinner's prayer, he would have taken you the second you got born again. You got born again so that you could live a life, an entire life of significance, purpose, and alignment with his plans and purposes. And this is why it's so important, an entire generation, to see the value of work. To see the value of holding down a job that it's not always glitz and glam. It's about stepping in and saying, God, fill me with purpose even in the mundane reality of my nine to five. We need the Lord to baptize us again to realize this is where most of us will live most of our lives. And so we might as well do it and take as many folk as we can with us with the Spirit of Jesus. And then what else is our heart posture at work? Number, number four, and there's more, to be a winsome witness. Winsome witness. Someone who's bearing witness out of the bubbling up overflow of a happy, satisfied customer, not just a salesman who knows the right things to say. Someone who's been, who lives a lifestyle of feasting on Jesus so that when you give witness to him, when someone asks a question, when someone starts breaking down, when someone's slandering, when someone's heart cracks at work, you're there to speak and to be the hands and feet of Jesus to speak a gospel word and let him do the heavy lifting. How many would say right now you're challenged right now to rethink even your workplace in light of this simple little slide. Just, God, I want to see it the way you see it. And so, Father, I want to pause right here. I want to pray, Holy Spirit, anoint our, those in this flock, in their sphere of influence, to see what you see, to live as you've designed them to live. I pray for the spirit of excellence, intentionality, innovation, and a winsome witness, God. I pray that you would strengthen every single person in here who's in the workforce. And Father, those who are even, Lord, retired and are, they're not just wasting their life and busy, they're not just busy doing this or that. I pray for just that, the ability to mentor, to coach and encourage those who are still at the nine to five reality. And so just bless them, God. Bless the worker. Father, we do, we pray for our, every, all the seven cultural streams, God, all of the working force on the, on the Central Coast, that it would flourish, that you would bless bosses, that you would just re- continue to release strategy, God. We ask, God, against break the power of hopelessness and helplessness and despair in the workplace, God. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So, so we glorify God at work. We exalt Jesus, and we ask the Holy Spirit to empower and embolden us for at least those four things. Why? He goes on. I love it. This is, I would do that if I, well, forget it. Verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he suffered, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You're like, hold on, everyone do this with me. Peter, what are you doing? Believers submit to governing authorities. Slaves submit to masters. And then all of a sudden, he goes on a gospel interlude right as he's talking about believers and submission. Do you think Peter did this because he just randomly got taken up? Or do you think to remind us that our submission and how we live in the world has a higher purpose, following in the footsteps of Jesus? And so I love this next slide. Stop and reflect. Again, Peter's writing a letter to real people scattered because they got kicked out of Rome because they were followers of Jesus. So he's writing for real-time problems that need real-time solutions and real-time help. 
How many would say you're in that category in your workplace right now? I need real-time help. I need real-time hope. I need a gospel word for the hour in which I live. All of us. And so Peter, Peter right here in verse 21, he's like, stop. Reflect. Believers and authorities, slaves and masters, he's going to talk about wives and husbands and then all believers. And look at this. Don't, next slide, don't, as believers, we can, read it with me. Don't forget the why. One more time. Don't forget the why. Why do I live the way we live? Why do we submit? Why do we abstain from sin? Why do we choose to suffer even when we don't deserve it? Why do I, why do I, why do I live this way? I, and, and Peter, right in the heart of when he's talking about all the authority structures of his culture and how they apply today, He's like, by the way, the why is because you're following one who suffered in your place. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Whose example do we follow? Jesus' example. When he suffered, he made no threats. When they hurled, imagine him on the cross right now with your sanctified imagination. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. If you're the son of, think of all the gospel narratives. If you're the son of God, come down. We'll believe in you. You said you would destroy the temple and raise, imagine all the slanders, all the accusations. The only innocent man in human history hangs on the cross, totally innocent, totally pure, totally pure, perfect. If there ever was one who should have got the easy pass and not had to suffer, it would have been Jesus. But Jesus stands as an example for us that no matter what we face at work, at home, in the world, with authorities, his example always rises to the top to say, this is your high and holy calling to do as he has done. We're not following the example of our favorite political commentator. We're not following the example of the most influential. We're not following the example of the one who won the argument in the chat section. We're not following any other person's example but Jesus Christ, period. There is not another example worth following. And you and I are forever addicted when it's to choose between Christ and his suffering love or Barabbas and his insurrection Oh, violent takeover. We always call for Barabbas, but there is a generation that God is inviting that we wouldn't say release Barabbas, but we're standing with the Son of God, the only pure and perfect, worthy example of everything. And we're always tempted, even in our hour, to reach for another Barabbas. If you remember the gospel stories, it was, it was, it was Barabbas. Who do you want me to, who do you want me to release? The guy who's a murderer who was trying to overthrow the powers or this innocent one that you call the king of the... Crucify him. Give us the guy who's committed to overthrow through power. That's why this whole section is about the subversive power that believers carry. Let me tell you something. You and I are the only category of people on the planet who can actually afford to play the long game because we know how the story ends. You didn't hear me. I don't need claps. I mean, I appreciate it. I'm saying you and I, believers who experience the John 11, 25 through 26, we're already experiencing resurrection life. Even though we die, we're not dead. There's life forevermore. Read John 11. You and I are the only ones of any category of people who have a living eternal inheritance and hope, which should free us from any other paradigm or practice but following in the footsteps of Jesus. Period. Whose example do we follow? Jesus Christ. Don't forget the why. Tell your neighbor, don't forget the why. Oh, that, I get it, Justin. Now you got Should I re-say what I all that I just said, or were you all distracted that I literally forgot the NT? Oh, thank you, Jesus, for your humbling grace. Don't forget the why. Say it with me. Don't forget the why. And so Peter, right as he's in the middle of all the different structures, he's like, guys, 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 
Don't forget the why. We're following Jesus here. Amen. Let's go on. I got to finish this or we'll never finish Peter in our life. Let's go. This is quick. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles, the wearing of gold jewelry, or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And so again, if you're reading 21st century sort of, uh, you read this, you're like, Ugh. how many would say that? Just be honest. Why submit? I mean, you can't say that in church. Don't you? Everyone's equal. Amen. Okay, so, but I can't change the Bible, and this is actually God's design and intention. So again, in first century, in the first century, women had basically no rights. And so when Peter, and so, and everything in the first century, because it was, it was called, help me out, historians, it was called the pater familias. Everyone say pater, father, familias. It was all about the Roman code that there was a, the oldest male in the house had complete dominating authority. And so the fact that Peter is acknowledging wives, again, we can't hardly hear it in 21st century because of our, you know, jacked up colored lenses about inequality and all these sort of things, as true as that has been, okay? But for first century, every wife who would have heard this part in Peter's letter is like, duh, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to submit. But notice all of those things where Peter gives dignity and value to the wife that she, in all, whatever agency she has, leverage it and use it for God's glory and his kingdom purposes, and how would she do that in the first century and in our century? By becoming a beautiful witness. And I chose those words on purpose. To become a beautiful witness. Remember, that, how would she do this? By cult, if you read the passage again, by cultivating a Christ-like character. By pursuing a life of purity, of meekness, and a peaceful spirit. To pursue true beauty that doesn't fade with age. How many want to tap into a beauty that does not depend on your age. And Peter is saying, again, just like the first century, there was a vision of what a beautiful woman looked like. Peter's like, don't buy the garbage. True, the, he says, pursue the true beauty that has an unfading, eternal shelf life. The beauty of a heart transformed through the glory of the gospel. Amen. Amen. Why? Again, don't forget the why. Next slide. Why should I, listen, because listen, I'll get to it in a second. Husbands are not off the hook. Just wait. Just wait. Why should I do that? Remember, Peter's writing to real people, real churches, real situations where wives, and this happens. I've traveled to 20 states. I've ministered around the world. So many times, it's the woman or the wife that comes to faith before the husband. Can I get it? How many would say that was their story without covering shame? Many mamas in this room, for the first to come to faith, that has happened since the first century. There were women at the cross. I want to go on another sermon about women. They were the first witness of the I love it. I love it. So imagine all these women who came to faith, who got out of the rat race of Roman culture, of the elaborate hair and trying to keep up with the Joneses and all this nonsense. And he's, they're like, well, what do we do? Our husband, like, he can sleep with whoever he wants with no con. It's paterfamilias. He has all authority. He can dominate our kids. He can dominate me. He doesn't have to be faithful to me. Peter's like, I get all of that. You pursue purity and a peaceful spirit. There's a greater purpose in your marriage now that you're a believer. It's that you could win your husband over through your behavior. It's unbelievable. Like, he's like, I, this is super complicated. I know. He's, I know. In our culture, he can dominate. But listen. You're free. Remember, go back to chapter 2, verse 16. You're, you live as a free person because there's freedom in the gospel. But now take your agency and freedom and serve your husband who doesn't yet believe because I can get, listen, you've got a way to get him that no one else can get him. Come on, wives, can I get an amen? Through the purity and reverence of their life. Peaceful, beautiful spirit. 
right there in verse 2, verse 1, that they may be won over. And so what he says to wives is this. Again, don't forget the why. You've got to maintain a kingdom perspective in every relationship and in next slide and in every responsibility. There's a greater purpose, and it's called God's mission. Chad, does that mean it's easy? A little louder. No. In fact, many, many would sit here. I could listen for hours, for days, for weeks. It is the furthest thing from easy to come to faith and then have to walk those. And I've, I've just seen, again, I've traveled. I've, know, I've just seen it. So many mamas, so many wives, so many mothers come to faith first. And there's that period, that difficulty, and that wrestle to maintain a vibrant spirit. But I want you to know there's grace for you for that calling. He's with you. Remember, you're like, Chad, is it? No, to this you are called because Christ suffered for you. We have to just keep going back to Jesus so that they may be won over. Can you imagine through our, listen, however difficult the suffering, the, the difficulty, Jesus help me and empower me. How many have seen, even though maybe you, husband, wife, were the first to come to faith, how many have seen your husbands come to, to know the Lord after years? Many of us. So don't lose kingdom perspective. And then lastly, husbands. In this, read it with me, in the same way. We're going to get there. Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Almost every commentator that has nothing to do with intellect, spiritual, emotional capacity, it's just physical. That's what he's saying. As the weaker partner, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I'm just going to fire off really fast. I already mentioned it. In Roman culture, it was called pater familias. It was that the oldest man in the house had complete dominating authority. These are just a few of his privileges. He could expose infant offspring, especially girls, without consequence in the first century. He could sell a son into slavery, administer physical punishment to every household in his in his house, hand over household members accused of wrongdoing in the marriages of his sons, <clears throat> violently take the life of his wife, child, grandchild, or slave without any consequences. This is the context Peter's writing to. And look now, for us in the 21st century, we get the wives submit. We're like, duh. And them, that wouldn't even, of course. This is the part that's revolutionary, but we've got to go back so we can go forward. Now look what Peter writes in light of all the authority that male household figures have. Now look what he says to husbands. Let's read it on the screens. Husbands, together. In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Do you see it? 21st century, this part, we're like, it doesn't really hit us. Imagine getting the letter like, wait, Peter, you're, you're subverting every single dynamic of how men function in our society with power. You're challenging the very heart of what it means to be the man of the house. And how many know there is a kind of man that submission to Jesus, servant in the spirit of agape love that is infectious over our households if we'll just follow Jesus in his example. Saying be considerate, treat them with respect. No one on, on any, hanging out at any Roman first century coffee shop, hey, respect your wife, bro. No one would have heard it. This is completely unprecedented in the first century and it's, an, it's a word for today. There is no room for chauvinistic jerks in any household. Can I get an amen? amen? We have power and authority as husbands not to dominate and to coerce and to get what we want, but to give our lives away in service to our wives and our kids. Wait, listen, I don't have time. It's already time. Just go read all of Ephesians 5 and you'll get it. And so, in closing, respect and honor in marriage what he writes to husbands, next slide, is this. Your wife is a joint heir with you. She is your co-laborer, and the way you treat her 
will directly and proportionally impact your prayer life. Can I get a mic drop in the house? Darn it. He says, if you don't, if you're not considerate, if you don't treat them with respect, if you don't understand that they are co-heirs with you, equal heirs of life that is found in Jesus, your prayers will be hindered. How many know many of us, in the, like our, we, our prayers hit the ceiling because we don't have the revelation that actually how I treat you, the person I can see, directly impacts my authority and my influence with heaven to release God's kingdom agenda on the earth. This is why John says in 1 John 5, don't say you love God. 1 John chapter 4, 19 through 21. Don't say you love God, but don't love your brother. You're a liar. Anyone who does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And so Peter's giving this principle to the pater familias, to the, the man of the house. He's like, dude, how you treat her is a reflection of how you actually view me. So treat her accordingly. Can we get a collective? And what he's calling husbands and wives and slaves and free and every believer in every cultural context, honor the image of God in the other. Honor the image of God. Why do we do all of this? Read this verse with me. 1 Peter 2, 15. All together. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. How many of us try to silence our accusers or culture by just raising the decibel level of our voice? Can we all say we've bought into that lie? Believers have the, are the only group of people on the planet who can play the long game. That, Chad, does that mean I can't speak up? No, didn't say that. Go listen to the talk last week. Resist. In a democracy like ours, as amazing as our country is, use your voice, protest, but never, ever, ever lose sight of whose name you bear and therefore whose character you're called to reflect and resemble. But it's by doing good we can silence. The, in the, in the, it's literally, it's muzzle the voices of the opposition, of foolish people. How many would say it's always an example of a lived, demonstrated commitment that has more weight and power than any intellectual dialogue or monologue ever will as a lived example of someone who's actually got skin in the game? And what Peter is saying in every way, whether it's to governing authorities, slaves and masters, bosses and employees, husbands and wives, in every way, the whole household, last slide, has been reinterpreted through the narrative arc of Jesus' sacrificial love. To this last slide, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So let's just pause as we come to the table. It literally could not be a better, every week is a good week to take communion, for the record. But Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 25, he literally just directly quotes from Isaiah 52 and 3. Isaiah 53 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that bought, brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If we're honest, almost none of us by nature, apart from the Spirit, are good at anything I just said. <laughs> to submit, to suffer, to see the image of God even in my enemy, even in that guy at work or that gal. 
That's why Peter, I'm convinced, right in the middle of this entire household code passage, he holds up Christ and the cross. He says, guys, you can't forget your why. Just say that right now. I can't forget the why. I can't forget the why. I'm called to follow Jesus and to subvert through sacrificial love, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to speak truth to power in the spirit of Christ and to model a different way of being through his love. You say, Chad, but my husband doesn't deserve it. Or my wife or my boss who's just a jerk. They don't deserve it. Need I remind us, on the night that he was betrayed, he shared the cup and broke the bread for those who would deny him and betray him. And he still said, you know what, I'm going to give you the cup because I'm playing the long game. How many are so thankful that Jesus Christ played the long game? Even though they would all betray him and deny him, he knew Satan asked to sift you, Peter, but I prayed for you, and you, when you return to your senses and your faith, lead your brothers. How many are thankful that the story is never over as he reigns, and he's always out to get us so that he can save us and transform us and give us another shot in his love? How many are thankful for the infinite mercy of Jesus Christ? So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Take this and eat it in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you eat this bread or you drink this cup, you proclaim my death, and you're looking forward to my return. So with gratitude, let's take the cup of his suffering this morning. Here's how I want to end. If in any one of those dynamics, you need the grace of God to transform your heart and your perspective and to give you fresh strength to go at it again this week, can you just stand to your feet? Whether it's with the the governing authorities and how to participate, the complexity of our hour, the messiness and craziness, whether it's between you and your boss, maybe you are a boss, you want to rethink how you lead. Whether it's in your marriage or if you're not married in your other significant relationships, you need the grace of God to transform your perspective. And let's just talk to the Lord. Take 30 seconds and just say, come Holy Spirit, transform me in that area I need a touch from you. Just say, I receive your provision. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your healing. And I agree with your word. Jesus, you're the example. Jesus, your footsteps illuminate the path we are called to walk on. And so, Jesus, we receive fresh grace to live as you lived for the sake of your glory and your name. In Jesus' name we said,